Hello, friends. And hello to all of you, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Improv and Magic. I'm LD, and my guest today is a true inspiration in the world of improv. She's not only one of the most talented performers I've ever met, she's also one of the kindest people I know, and her name is Stacy Halal. Stacy is the founder and artistic director of Curious Comedy Theater in Portland, Oregon, and has been performing, teaching, and directing improv for over 20 years. She's trained and performed at Second City, I.O., Annoyance, and Comedy Sports in Chicago, and has performed and taught improv and sketch comedy at over 100 festivals across North America. Stacy is also the creator of her very popular improvised show called Ruby Rocket Private Detective, an incredibly inventive and amazing show which she's performed with many other great performers like Maribeth Monroe, Stephanie Weir, Amber Nash, and Colin Mockery. Stacy holds a very special place in my heart because it was watching her duo with Mark Sutton at the Miami Improv Festival many years ago that completely changed me and made me realize the type of improv I really wanted to do. So I owe a lot to Stacy for that moment, and we even talk about that moment here in the interview. I certainly owe her a lot for talking to me right now. She's warm, loving, passionate, and so thrilling to watch and learn from. Friends, here now is my guest, Stacy Halal. And with me now is the always amazing, always lovely, and always so kind, Stacy Halal. Hey, Stacy, how are you? Hey, LD. What a sweet introduction. I'm doing okay, thank you. <laughs> it is uh, It is so good to see you again, and it's been really good to see you again at our festival this year, because we really hadn't seen you since, uh, since the pandemic, and uh, I was just so excited to see you again <laughs> this past January. I was so excited to be there. We talk about the Miami Improv Festival all year long and look forward to it. And it was so great to get to be back and see you and all our friends there. It's just one of it's one of my favorite times of year. <laughs> How are things going for you these days? Uh, at the theater or do you mean personally or both? In general, in general. Yeah, things are OK. I think uh you know, it's been it's been a hard summer. We lost my mom and uh, and then John and I just got covid last week again, which is so 2020 of us. Uh, <laughs> but um, but there's also, you know, been some highlights. We did um, half of the Montreal Fringe, which uh, was my first time there. Uh, for the fringe and my first time back to Montreal since I was a kid because I grew up in Boston which isn't far away so we had done some like field trippy kind of things but as an adult I loved it it felt a lot like Portland in the 90s it was incredible there were five different festivals happening simultaneously like a mural festival so there were murals being painted everywhere, a breakdancing festival, a French music festival. Like it was just so cool, uh, so international. I loved having French around me. It was really fun. Uh, and then also we went to Montana and saw my sister and I've never been to Montana and uh, met her there. For, her family was vacationing. It was a 
a trip that had been postponed from since 2020. And I got to see Annie and Levin uh, O'Connor's venue, Last Best Comedy in Bozeman, which is amazing. Uh, so that was super fun. So there's been some highlights in the in the toughness. And then, yeah, just I think a lot of theaters are really struggling because we're in that like still volatile time from having been closed and we haven't dug ourselves out of the hole yet, but the emergency funds are gone. And so, you know, the first year open was brutal. And then, uh, and then October to May was amazing, like a light switch flipped and then may it just got flipped off again and so we've been like hanging on by our fingertips through the summer but things are starting to pick up so that's that's the long answer to your question <laughs> but <laughs> you know in all aspects a lot of uh, a lot of volatility it was just a lot of roller coasterness in my life right now yeah such as life such as life as my grandmother used to say um, let's start at the beginning with you, Stacy. Um, where did you grow up and what was growing up for you like? Oh my goodness. Uh, I grew up in a little town north of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, closer to the New Hampshire border, uh, Chelmsford. I have to say it that way, Chelmsford, Massachusetts, because the way that we say it was Chumpsford. So people think it's like chump. Fud, but it's it's Chelmsford, but Chumpsford, Mass, where we fucking smoked cigarettes out in the fucking state forest. Um, so that's where I grew <laughs> up, and uh, youngest of four kids, and uh, I, you know, we always had everything we needed. And I always felt very privileged that we did. We didn't have a lot when we were growing up. Like all three girls shared a bedroom, a tiny little bedroom with uh, two twins. And my mattress was on the floor because I was the youngest for a long time. And then they eventually got bunk beds and we're all still obsessive about pairing our socks because we had <laughs> one drawer with all of our socks in it and we we learned later that we all uh have sock trauma and so we all pair our socks because we spent so much time trying to find matching socks growing up but yeah like uh, my my parents super workaholics both of them my mom went back to school uh while i was little to and got her uh her bachelor degree and bachelor's degree. And then she went back and got her uh, graduate or what's it called? <laughs> master's degree at Harvard while she had four kids. Um, and my dad um, got his master's degree from the Sloan school at MIT. So my parents were very like smart, hardworking, education oriented, and then family oriented. It was just all very much about family. So I also feel very privileged that I grew up in a family that was so close and uh, all about love. Just I grew up with a very loving family. It was a lot of drama and like things that happened in families and stuff, but like always a base of security and, and love above all. Do you feel like you took from your parents that feeling of hardworking and determination? Do you feel like it comes from them for you? 
Definitely. I definitely think uh, we all grew up with uh, poverty mentality uh, and just an intense work ethic. My dad was first generation. Uh, His parents immigrated from Syria when they were little and um, they didn't have much. And so like my generation with all my brothers, sisters, all my cousins are all like inherited that real like new to America work ethic that comes with trying to make it in this country. Even though my grandparents were not like that, really, you know, they they had very little forever. And I mean, they worked hard, but my grandmother, you know, was stay at home and cooked amazing Syrian food and took care of everybody. She had four sons and her husband in a two bedroom apartment. But they were happy. They always would say that they would say we we had we had nothing, but we were happy. And so there's that side of it also. Hmm. Yeah. So I think I got both of those things from that. You said that you were the youngest of four, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My wife is actually uh, the middle of four and she counts as the middle because her oldest uh, is her her older brother and um, her younger brother and sister are twins. So that's how she can qualify as middle of four for all you mathematicians out there. (laughs) (laughs) But um, when you're the youngest of four, what is that experience like? Because usually I hear that when you're the youngest, all the attention is always put on you. And sometimes the older ones get a bit of jealousy. What was that experience like for you being the youngest of four? Yeah, I think that's fair. I I wasn't just the fourth. They, they were all very close together, um, like some less than I think 12 months or just about. So they were all bang, bang, bang. And then there was four years and then there was me. So I was very much not just the youngest, but the baby. So it was like growing up with five parents. And I think for a long time, I, a very long time, even in college, I didn't know what was me about me because I I would be like oh I like this about John or I like this about Nancy like I would take traits about each of my sibling and try to adopt them into myself and so then I could look at myself and always attribute characteristics to somebody else and it took a long time very much a late bloomer for me to discover who I was and how that's different from all of them um and yeah, I think my my sisters, I think, had the the brunt of it because my brother was the main focus because it's my brother, then my two sisters, and then me. So one of them is the middle, too, because she counts as the middle because she's the middle girl for mm. all those mathematicians out there. <laughs> so, <laughs> people always find a way to find who the middle is. But like I was the quiet one, the serious one, the sad one uh for a long time and i i definitely felt invisible a lot actually and i would my mother when all my siblings went away to college and then they came back the first time we were all together again my mother was like oh stacy's always complaining that nobody listens to her and now i realize she's right because she started to miss me when my siblings were all there because i had had that one-on-one attention and then I and then I was back into the fray so I was very much an introvert growing up always a night owl 
I just like read a lot and I just, I withdraw from like too much chaos. So even like at Thanksgiving where I learned all of my producing skills because we would have a Thanksgiving in our little ranch house for 50 or 60 people every year, that was our family's holiday and they would pull it off by using neighbors ovens and fridges and like it was huge huge borrowing tables and chairs huge production but i'd be the one who like ran the errands you know mm. i'd call in and be like there's no cinnamon <laughs> you know whatever <laughs> uh or you know cinnamon acquired anything else that you realize you needed just because i i am actually an introvert so your love of producing started at the Thanksgiving table. For sure. Definitely. <laughs> you know, I'm very interested in what you said about how you would try to take uh, attributes from from your brother and, and, and sisters. And I find it interesting because I felt like I kind of did that as well. I was an only child, but I would find that when I would go to school, I would see who who were the kids that everyone else kind of gravitated towards and what made them cool and figured, well, maybe I could take on those personalities. Um, it clearly didn't work for me, but, but I find it, (laughs) but I find it, (laughs) but I find it interesting that whole thing of taking on, uh, other attributes. Did you feel like you did that a lot, not just with your family, but with other people, other classmates and friends? I don't remember. I think I had so many people already that I was like, they were really up on a pedestal for me, my family. And so I don't think anyone could compare. So it was mainly my own family, which was more, more than enough. And it wasn't so much like an actor's approach of like, I want to seem like this. It was very much like, oh, this person's very considerate or this person's very smart. Like, and I, and I really tried to build those internally into who I was, you know, into my like core identity. Yeah. So no, I really don't remember. And I know some people I think even do it with like celebrities and stuff. Uh, It was for me, it was all like, I just was so, I so very much in love with my family. (laughs) Were you still introverted when it came to dealing with other kids in in school? Um, that's a great question. A funny thing is that I think my family is just so big and loud and close. And, and when I say close, I also mean like physically like close talkers and that I'm introverted compared to them. Mm. And then, yeah, I guess I did though in school. I was also, I usually, I was very much not a like group of friends person. I always had one best friend. You know, I, I didn't really go to parties in high school. I wasn't really interested in like beer drinking parties in high school. Um, in like very short phase of it in college. Like I'm just not like a huge crowd person. I like one-on-one, like I was smoking weed with my friend Doug and walking through the woods. And then in college, I was like taking acid with another friend and walking through the woods. Like that was like, (laughs) that's, that's more my speed. And I was also very like, I was also a girl with mostly, um, like interests that 
socially are considered male. So my friends were usually guys. Um, and I didn't really have, I had one, you know, best friend until like seventh grade. But once I hit middle school, the in terms of girls, like did not like them, did not trust them, uh, and didn't have very many female friends until one in college that has stuck. And then like, not, not until I was like 28, did I build like a beautiful network of women friends that brought me back over to the, to the, to the side of, of women. But like, it took a long time, but I'm into, you know, comedy, animation, like things and video production. Those are still to this day, male dominated activities. So. So you were pretty much a tomboy in those early years? Yeah, but not more like just a nerd. Like I I played sports, but I wasn't like a tomboy, like hanging with the like one of the boys tomboy who's right. I was a tomboy, like nerd, like AV club tomboy. Um, but I still liked to wear like skirts and dresses and stuff. But then I also, it, when I when I went to college, I got more like anti girly stuff and like cut my hair really short. I've always liked my hair short though. Went growing up. So it was a little bit fashion wise, like more punkish, I guess. It was half punk, half hippie, which I think makes sense growing up in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Right? It was like yeah. de- descendant of the those movements. Um, and those were parts, both parts of me. There was the part of there still is, actually, as I'm <laughs> as I'm saying it, I'm realizing how much I'm like everybody's amazing and let's uplift the world. And then I'm like, fuck everybody. They're fucking horrible. Let's burn it all down. (laughs) Oh goodness. (laughs) Yeah. We've all had that feeling, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. Especially the system, right? It was a lot of like burn down the system. Massachusetts, very old school and professional place. And like, it was never, it just never felt like home to me. Really? Yeah. Not a fan. Hmm. So at what point did you become interested in performing? I never thought I would. I dabbled a little in college, so I think I was secretly, even to myself, interested in it. But I wanted to write and direct films, and that's what I went to school for was – was radio, television, and film. I, so you just wanted to be on the other side of things. Yeah. I did not think. And I didn't really like actors at all. And like, to me, actors were all musical theater people who sing show tunes all the time and they're like really big personalities. And because of my introversion, like, I was just like, oh my God. And like, when I'd see actors, even friends, right, who had like a pile of headshots of themselves just casually out. I was just like, Oh, it's so vain. And I, I was very not that person. Um, I wanted to be more hidden and invisible, but there was clearly something that happened that got you interested in, in being on the, on in front of the camera or on stage. Uh, what was it that did it for you? Well, When I was in high school, my sister was at college and her first two years were at Boston College and she was an improv group 
called my mother's flea bag, which eventually after her, like that was uh, Amy Poehler's improv group in college. And just a little aside, but. Um, Feel free to name she, drop. It's okay. Well, I didn't know her and she didn't know her. It's just if anyone <laughs> is really into trivia, uh, Amy Poehler was part of Boston College's group called My Mother's Fleabag. Here's my actual closer relationship to Amy Poehler since you invited it. Uh, my sister lived upstairs from Amy Poehler's grandmother in her grandmother's house in Watertown, Massachusetts. Oh, no way. And we could hear her mother and her sisters and her grandmother, like just cackling like fucking Boston hens down there. It was hilarious. <laughs> and at that point, Amy had just gotten on SNL. And so she wasn't even hugely famous yet. Um, but I knew who she was because of the improv world, right. in the comedy world. And then, and my sister lived there just as like the whole world found out how funny and amazing Amy Poehler is. And her, her grandmother would talk about her all the time. It's really cute. So anyway, that that's my, because she's from, she's from Burlington, Massachusetts. Uh, so what was I saying? Oh yeah. So I did. So my, so I would go to those shows and see my sister in those shows and they were like half sketch, half improv. And they were so funny. And you know, my family has a lot of humor and, and joy. And I think that I have that role of the grounded person to my sister, who who was the actor. And my family was very into, like, labeling what everyone was, right? And so um, my sister was the actor and not me. And But I was very much playing her grounded character to her absurd character because she was the the big personality and the one out there and the one who wanted the spot because she was the middle mm -hmm. so she wanted that spotlight and to shine and she had to work hard to be seen she had to work the hardest to be seen and then I got to be like her grounded character so I think I was sort of practicing that at home not knowing that and then um but I was always like writing little sketch ideas down and I was always interested in comedy. And then I, when I went to school, I took the theater department at Northwestern is very intense and very competitive. And if you're not a theater major, it's very hard to get into those classes. So I took a couple of like fringy theater classes, like performance of poetry. I took an independent production that someone was leading where we we wrote one person shows it was all very feminist um so I did some stuff but I would like blank I would get ma like my stage fright was massive and I would blank out and freeze and it would distort time it was really hard for me to do and then and then I read a book it's um Bernie Brillstein, who was a big Hollywood guy, has a book called something like What Did I Do Right or Where Did I Go Right? And in it, he talks about how if you want to write film, you should do improv. Because everyone really? should do improv. Mm -hmm. Because you really learn, I think what you mostly learn now on you know 25 years later, but is not to write these long monologues for every character. You learn how to have a give and take between the characters and have them each say 
one thing at a time. Uh, and you learn position play, right? And you learn how to have different voices and different characters so they don't all talk like you. I mean, there's so many things that you learn if you're trying to write characters and dialogue and story arcs, right, from improv. So it was my excuse to do it because I obviously, like, was interested in it but afraid to do it. And I did a little bit of it in college. And then I graduated, I moved to Eugene and I lived there for four years, Eugene, Oregon, and there was no improv and I was trying to start little groups and stuff, but there was no like internet resources and trying to do it from books when you can't see it. Like I was just the, you know, the blind leading the blind. I don't think that expression is probably a good one anymore, but um, in any case, I didn't end up doing it till I was 28 and I moved to Portland and I started taking some classes and it was the hardest. I always say it was the hardest thing I ever did. So I became addicted to it, but I started with short form because back then everyone started with short form. It wasn't until UCB that people skipped short form and went right into long form. Right. So back then right. everybody did short form and there wasn't much long form if you weren't in Chicago, really. And I, I knew it wasn't what I wanted. And I even, Pat Short, who's lovely and runs the comedy sports out here in Portland, I just remember going for a walk with him around the block one time. I, I must have initiated it because I don't know why we would have been going for a walk around the block. And I was just like spilling to him. You know, it's just searching for something. And I was just like, I love this and this is great. And I so appreciate this, you know, and I was like, but I know that there's this isn't exactly what I want, because what I wanted was things like um, that would lead me to Christopher Guest movies like this is Spinal Tap or um, even drama. There was um, Michael Lay movies who uh, he did one called Life is Sweet and the storyline is like a a woman finds her a, a a black british woman finds her biological mother and it's this white woman and it's i'm only distinctly saying that because it's part of the story um spoiler but, alert yeah well it's pretty <laughs> it's right from the get go <laughs> like oh, okay okay yeah. no spoiler also alert also i think it's 30 years old so um <laughs> but it's a great movie and it was done like Curb Your Enthusiasm or Christopher Guest movies where they had a structure and then people improvised around it. And so that that was what I wanted. Like I really wanted to write, but I, I prefer to work collaboratively. And I didn't know long form existed, even though I'd gone to school in Chicago and IO was right there. I didn't know IO existed. I met talk about name dropping. I met Dell Close to ask him what I should do because classes at Second City were so expensive. And he didn't even freaking mention IO. Really? Yes. That's so weird. Well, I guess it's not so weird because I'm a woman. You know? <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately. Actually, Sharna always says that he thought uh, Amy Poehler was the only woman he ever thought was funny. Really? Yeah. So <laughs> that's probably why. But uh, anyway, so... I didn't know what long form was. And then the Brody Theater here in Portland, which had a 25-year run and closed in a timely way shortly before the pandemic on purpose, 
um, he just retired from doing it, uh, had a long form festival. And it blew my mind. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly the thing that I've been looking for. And uh, Rob Reese from New York, who's still around doing improv, uh, had a thing called Amnesia Wars. This is the name of his company. He was one of the teachers. Asaf Ronan was there with Adrian Frost. And they did um, um, an improvised Sondheim. Um, an improvised Sondheim? Yeah. Now that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of incredible. And the next year, Bob Dassey came and then he and um my boyfriend at the time like befriended him like we were his hosts and took him around Oregon during the day and he became a huge influence on me and a mentor and an amazing amazing human and just still to this day one of my favorite improv teachers and performers um so that was when I was like hooked when I found long form and but I would like be sick all day before shows. I would like have weird like weeps after a show, whether it was good or bad. Like my anxiety was massive, massive. For two years, it was so bad. I almost didn't keep doing it. I was like, I didn't know if it was worth it for the amount of anxiety and stuff around it. Did you feel like when you were jumping in the long form, that it was what you needed to deal with this anxiety or do you feel like maybe it just kind of made it worse? I think it was just stage fright. It was just stage fright. Hmm. Cause I didn't have the anxiety like at rehearsals. I just, it's just stage fright for anyone who's ever experienced it. And um, in a way I have a theory that stage fright is like PTSD from some bad childhood experiences. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Yeah. So I had, you know, I did a couple, I did a play that went fine when I was in like fifth grade. So I must have had interest then. But then I did like a talent show that went really badly. Um, I was like also in like fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. Uh, and I don't know, my family was pretty ruthless about it. And so I wonder if that just didn't like ingrained in my body that I wasn't supposed to do it. I did a talent <laughs> show my senior year. I sang a song, but I was so nervous. Like it, the whole song was vibrato, but I did get through that, but my family didn't even come. My parents didn't even come see it. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think it was just like a lack of support because I just, they couldn't see me as that. And they were very unsupportive, my parents, for a long time. It wasn't until I did the, um, how many years was I doing it before they, I'm trying to think. It was like potentially six years, but that doesn't seem to add up. No, it must've been like four years, but I, they were living in Orlando and I, or outside of Orlando and I did the SAC Comedy Lab Festival and I told them I was visiting, but I didn't tell them what I was doing. And then at the last minute I told them about the show and they came and I was like, I regressed back to my full blown stage fright with them there. 
But they totally turned her, even though I had like not a great show and my mom's feedback was like, oh, Deanna's really funny. Uh, and you looked really pretty up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's st- a compliment. <laughs> yeah. In my mother's like Italian backhanded kind of way. But it also was, um, it also changed them though. Just, I don't know, seeing me do it, even though I didn't, I don't think I did it well in front of them. They totally became supportive after that. They just needed to see it, I guess. But anyway, so I think that really fed a lot of that fed my, my stage fright. And with stage fright, you, the only way to get over it is to just keep doing it a lot like PTSD. So you just have to do the thing until, until it goes away. And then I didn't know it doesn't ever like fully go away. So if I do like when I started doing sketch, I would regress in the level of stage fright because it's different. Your brain finally slices like, okay, improv is something that's now safe enough, but like sketch introduces a written element. And that means somebody's written it. And now I think that it's funny enough to do it again in front of people or and then stand up and then music, especially. Um, I can get away with music if, you know, because it's like what I'm improvising because it's in, I can sing in character and stuff. And somehow that gets a little more lumped in. But if I tried to perform, I was taking guitar lessons and doing recitals and my stage fright was so bad, my hands would get wet and shake. And it's really hard to play the guitar when your hands are wet and shake. So I experimented with like beta blockers one time. And that was an amazing feeling. Really? Because, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, um, an accompanist uh, from a singing class I was taking suggested it to me. And he like kind of pulled me aside and was like, you might just want to try this. And... What's weird is you feel all the fear and everything still on the on the inside. It doesn't make the fear go away, but it makes your body, it blocks your adrenaline from affecting your body in any way. Hmm. So I was able to play at the level that I had prepared to play. You know, the songs that I knew really well came out really well. And the songs I didn't know as well, I made some mistakes. But I wasn't like fucking up because of the fear. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting thing, but I've never taken beta blockers for improv, but, um, uh, Kevin, um, it's early in the morning here for me on a Sunday. And so Kevin Dorf, do you know, Kevin Dorf, he was on second city main stage and then he wrote for Conan for a long time. He's the guy in the, I think it's the first, 30 rock where she's buying the hot dog. He's like yelling at her about the hot dogs. He's been in a lot of stuff, but he, I met him at like my second improv festival. It was at UCB, uh, Del Close marathon. And it was only our second festival. It was only like two years into improv. And we got a seven thirty slot on a Saturday at the Del Close marathon. And there were three of us in the group. And this was when I was in all Jane, no Dick days. And, the third dropped out because she was too nervous. We had done, we had done the Chicago improv festival and she had so much anxiety. She was like, couldn't do it again. So we were doing a duo. We had not just never done a duo together, 
but we had never done a duo ever in any combination before because we're only two years in. And the person who dropped out was kind of our center and we were both the grounded people. And so we would always have great, we were both great at scenes with her, but when we were in scenes with each other, we would struggle because neither one of us was like the big absurd character person. Uh, so that was intense. And so I was very nervous and Joe Bill, I knew from the Chicago improv festival and I had made all these little, um, packets this is part of my anxiety and workaholic ism uh, in chicago i'd made all these little baggies and i put them on every seat and they were they had like an all day no dick bumper sticker a magnet uh candy necklaces hot tamales you know so it's just like these little swag like party favors and i put them on all of the chairs but then at del close you uh it's packed and then the people just kind of come and go. It isn't like they clear the theater and bring the theater back in. And I shipped all these supplies and I made all of these bags and Deanna, it was like stressed out. Like, what are you going to do with these? Like, this is annoying me. She was not happy about it. And I tried to, she went for a walk and I tried to put them all together while she was out of the room. And then when she came back in the room, her whole bed was covered with these, you know, bags I was filling <laughs> Oh, and um, and I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to put them in this bag and I'll bring them over and I may not hand them out. I may not do anything. And then ASCAT happened, which had Ali Faranakian, Joe Bill, all of the UCB four in it. Um, and all of a sudden they start coming out. I had brought the bag and I had left it backstage and all of a sudden they start coming out and they have candy necklaces on and they're eating the candy and some even have the bags in their hands. And Deanna was like pissed. She was just like, Oh my God. She was just so embarrassed that (laughs) they had, uh, you know, found our little stash and had gotten into it. But then right at the end of the set, Matt Walsh came out and he had the bag and he just threw all the stuff out to people Oh, no way. Uh, yeah. And then Deanna looked at me and she was like, okay, I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> See, it does work. <laughs> but that was because of Joe Bill. Cause they were, I think like, what the hell is this? You know? And Joe was like, this is my friend, Stacy. She's from Portland. She's very new. She's very nervous. And so then they chose to be sweet and supportive about it. Matt Walsh is the nice one, nicest one. So anyway, so that happened. That was so funny. And then I saw Kevin Dorf and I told him because he, he was also making fun of me for having made all these things. And I was, and we knew him because he would come to Portland a lot to teach. And before he, you know, went on to Conan and stuff. And I was like, you've had a lot of milestones in your career and the time I've known you and you must have fear and anxiety? Like, what do you do? And he was just like, I just know the fear is there and I just take care of myself. I have my coffee and I read the paper and I, you know, and it sounds so simple, but what was happening to me is that I would, the fear would trigger more fear. I'd be like, oh, my hand is shaking and people are going to see it shaking and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see it shaking, you know, and, and I would compound it 
so the, I'd get afraid because of the fear and the anxiety and whatever. And so that was a huge turning point for me, as simple as that advice is. But it was mm. like fighting the fear was exaggerating the fear, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally does. Do you feel like now you're much more able to deal with the fear or does that still kind of creep up every now and then, even now? It will occasionally. I am not a great auditioner. If you add in the factor that I know I'm being judged in some way. But I think after 24 years, it's not as obvious to other people when I when I'm feeling anxious. If you know you would probably because you know me from all this time, you would probably notice something different, you know, but mm -hmm. um but I don't think to like somebody who doesn't really know me that they would necessarily clock it as fear. I might just not perform at my best in there, you know, like what I normally would. But um, I don't think they would necessarily do it because my body, like just my muscle memory now is, I mean, I've done shows. I've been like just broken up with out of a seven year relationship and walked off stage and done a show or, you know, I've had like massive emotional things happen and I can walk on, do a show and then walk off and then I'll immediately feel where I was right before I walked on stage. But yeah. Hmm. So when you started really getting into long form improv, uh, you clearly fell in love with it right away. What did it do for you? Like, what were the things that you learned from it that you really felt like this is for me? I like telling a story as an ensemble. That's that's the thing I like. I like I love the surprises of and it was the thing I had to learn as, some, you know, I always say people come in improv either as a performer first or as a writer first, mm -hmm. because that's what we're doing is writing and performing and and at some levels, at least some of the people are directing as well. And so uh, as somebody coming in as a writer first, a lot of my roadblocks early on would be being like, it is obvious that the story <laughs> is going this way. And then they did this thing, you know, and I would get really <laughs> mad that people didn't do the story that I had written. Um, but that's what I love about it is that. Uh, I just love it when somebody makes an unexpected choice. That's why I enjoy playing with improvisers I've never met before in Ruby Rocket. You know, it's why I love traveling and just inviting different people. Um, it, when I first started doing that show, it was with audience members. Like, I just, I love being surprised and exercising my storytelling skills on how does this work? So like just last night where we were had a rehearsal and somebody was in a scene and it, they seemed like siblings. And then one of the siblings said, you city people come here and you expect this and that. And they both had Southern accents, but the, and the, and the, uh, one of the, the other person in that scene got really frustrated because she was like, I thought it was obvious that we were siblings. And then he called me a city person. And what I love is like, you can be both. You're both of those things. Obviously, mm. you have a Southern accent, but you're the sibling who moved to the city, right? Like, that's where story happens is where that cognitive dissonance happens of like, 
how can we both be have southern accents have this familiarity but then he said you're still you're city people to me and that muscle of like how do i take that unexpected piece of information and make it make sense that you know which makes sense that i do an improvised noir because i love having to make everything important and having to fold it in and have to somehow make sense of it that's my strength as an improviser and ruby also makes sense because i'm the grounded character and everybody else are the bigger you know i'm always like you have to be the bigger characters i'm here to support you so it really plays even though ruby is a character she's a deadpan detective and everyone else gets to be all the sparkly big wild characters and then i get to be like the weaver of the story I always enjoy watching uh, Ruby Rocket every time you you bring it down. Uh, and I wanted to get into that. Um, what gave you the idea to do this very noir type show? Because it's such an interesting concept and it's worked every single time I've seen it. So what gave you the idea to do something that like that? In 2003, when I was still very green as an improviser, but we had the All Jane website up. Mad TV was doing auditions for any woman who had ever said the word comedy. They were like really <laughs> casting a very <laughs> wide net and they invited us to submit. And I stayed up all night to make my submission tape. And it's like, uh, what is it? Three, it's three minutes and you get, um, yeah, it's three minutes and 30 seconds a character. You're supposed to do three impressions and three original characters. And so I did a Carrie, is it Carrie Ann Moss from Matrix? I did a Matrix impression. Uh, yes. I did a Dixie Chicks impression because when they had just gotten into all that trouble. And, and I did a Renee Zellweger impression. And I had like, I made wigs. Like I just did way too, like it is not how you <laughs> audition. You're just <laughs> supposed to just film yourself sitting there for the continuous, but I like edited it. Like I made it because of my background. And then for my original characters, I don't even remember what I did, but I, I think they liked my Dixie Chicks impression the most. So they uh, invited me to, to, to a callback. Not enough to fly me there, but if I flew there, I could go. And I and I got uh, Deanna as well. We we both got to go back, and we went, but we went at different times. And I was so sick. I was so sick all day. Like my stage fright was like at a level I'd never experienced. I could not move. But I was rewriting the original characters, and so I wrote just this. 30 second thing for this noir character. And that was, yeah, 2000, what did I say? 2003. And uh, so that means 20 years ago. This is, this is Ruby's 20, 20th anniversary. 20th wow. birthday. Yeah. And um, obviously I didn't get hired by mad TV, but I like <laughs> love this character. And so I wrote a longer piece or maybe I wrote a longer piece and I just did an excerpt. I think I had written the whole like a three minute piece and there's a three minute cartoon on YouTube. Um, and I was working at an animation studio at the time. And so I 
went to this flash animator who worked there because they thought he could crank something out kind of fast and asked him to animate it. And he said he would do it for free, but only if he could hand draw it. And he also hand draw it. Mm hmm. Wow. Because he does flash for work, but he's mm -hmm. in his heart, you know, a traditional 2D animator. So I was like, hell yeah. And so that took him three years. And he he hand drew the whole thing. He scanned it in and colored it online. But like his wife was helping him scan thousands of pages that he had drawn. And we put it on YouTube. I did the voice and, you know, we hired local people to who were great actors, did the other voices and we had a great, you know, I produced it fully as a project. And then, and this was kind of early YouTube still. And mm -hmm. we got like 30,000 ish views, which at the time was a lot like that was considered more <laughs> viral. Then, than, yeah. 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 And so there were these, everyone wanted to be YouTube the way everyone wants to be Netflix now. Everyone wanted to be YouTube then in the industry. And so there was this company called Anaboom and they wanted to be the YouTube of animation. And so they bought it and paid us to make five more two minute ones. And that all happened right at the same time I was opening the theater. It was crazy. It was so much going on. Um like literally building the out the theater and like painting and all day and laying down floors and then trying to write these Ruby rocket episodes. But uh, they're each like kind of established other characters in the, in the world. Cause they have the whole world very elaborately in my mind. And, uh, and then we didn't own it anymore though. And then this company tried to sell it and they, they brought it to adult swim who said, it's really close, but no one will uh, watch a thing with a female lead. Seriously. Seriously. Wow. Yeah. And this is like when Buffy was like, you know, there was a lot of stuff. So I was starting to build like a, an argument for it of like Buffy is massively huge and, you know, all these other things that were happening at the time. But Adult Swim in particular's demographic was teen males were like 20, you know, probably 14 to 40 year old males. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but, you know, but like she's sexy and she also has a lot of, like and also that's stupid. But um, but that was the feedback that they got and that they shared back with me. And so. So they, you know, they stopped trying to sell it and then they went out of business altogether. Hmm. Um, but between the time they sort of switched their business model before they fully went out of business where they became more of like, uh, Oh, you want a commercial? What kind of animation do you want? We'll match you up like an agent. And yeah. so they just weren't shopping anything around, but they still owned it cause they were still in business. So that's when I started doing it as a live show because I couldn't pursue it as anything else. Um, and I had seen Rebecca Northern, you know, Rebecca from, loose moose and um she's very famous in canada she's very funny very talented uh longtime loose moose person she has a show called blind date and it starts she's she's a trained clown as well so she has like a little cute little red nose and uh uh red dress and um she's sitting at like a 
Paris. It looks like a French cafe. And she has a little French accent. And the premise is that her date didn't show up and she's been stood up. And then she gets a member of the audience to join her and she does a 90 minute show with an audience member. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's not totally a solo show because she has some improvisers in the back who do a little bit of like the neighbors or the this or the that. And they're also, I think, they help at the beginning select. They they pick a couple candidates to potentially, they, they do a little pre-screening of who might be good. And uh, so it's not entirely a solo show, but the bulk of the show is her and an audience member. I mean, that is really what it is. And that's where timeouts came from that we instituted um, just for safety and and for DEI efforts is because she does a timeout in her show. And then so that if the person's uncomfortable, they can say timeout and then they move over to the side of the stage and they talk as themselves and then she brings them back into the show. And then mm-hmm. if they have like a significant other that's watching they can throw a timeout if it's getting like too intimate for them and doesn't feel comfortable um and i had met her once i saw the show twice when it came to van i met her in winnipeg at the fringe festival and it turned out she was going to be in vancouver in a couple months and so i went and saw it twice once with her and once with someone else playing her who was training, which was also really enlightening because she makes it look so easy. And the second person had a much more difficult date person who wasn't cooperating and was newer. So it was good to see it both ways. But I sent her a message like, if you ever want someone to do that, you know, be that for you, I would, you know, you're looking for other people and she was like well i really appreciate your <laughs> she had no idea like who i was whether i'd been doing improv for five minutes you know and she was like yeah i'm not you know i've got some people and i was like okay but then we came to know each other and actually right before the pandemic happened i was scheduled to go to atlanta and train to be in the show um oh, wow. which was like seven years after i first saw it but anyway so that's what inspired me so like ha- th- loving the character, not being able to play it or not being able to make cartoons of it uh, inspired me to do it live. And then watching Rebecca play with audience members made me want to do that. And we do a show called Open Court, which is just a long form jam. And I would say, despite the thousands of dollars I spent on classes in Chicago, I think I learned the most from improv from doing Open Court. You have to just deal with whatever anyone sends your way. So that's where that love of playing with anybody came from as well. So all of those, that's my very long answer to all the things that came together and made Ruby Rocket. And I did it about 50 times with audience members before I started doing it with improvisers. Because audience members, it's I don't know, sometimes I'm tempted to go back, but they don't always... They're not always as unpredictable as you as you would think, whereas improvisers will really surprise me every single. It's totally different every single time, and I don't have to like always. You know, the jokes aren't always coming from me coping with them not knowing what's going on. Right? It's uh, so it's really fun, and it's fun for what the new thing that I'm discovering and like doing it places like Bozeman and I when I did it in Montreal 
uh, I've been playing with improvisers I just meet, but a lot of them are also running their own theater companies and they get really excited to step into a show where they're like taken care of and they're not in charge. (laughs) And so it's (laughs) offering them the opportunity to just fully play and not feel responsible which when you are running your own theater is it's hard to feel that way. Mm. So I love that. Yeah. In what ways has the Ruby rocket show changed over the years or have there been any changes to the show over the years? I mean, I'd say the biggest is switching from three audience members as the other cast members to improvisers. Um, it's not even like a linear evolution. It just keeps changing. Like I just keep trying different things. So like I've done it with a recurring cast at Curious. I've done it with different people in different places. Um, Oh, well, we added the whole visual element five years ago with John. That's a huge change and upgrade. Um, Which which looks lovely. Absolutely lovely. So coolest thing ever. And for people who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, my boyfriend, John, we actually met on Bumble. And my excuse to meet with him, which was genuinely the reason why I wanted, like, I thought he was cute, but I thought he was a little too young. (laughs) And he's 12 years younger than I am. And I was like, but he kept popping up in my thing and in my list. And then he talks about how he does visuals and these visual, he's a visual artist. And I had, I had an idea that I wanted backgrounds um, for Ruby in a more literal way. And uh, so my, I was like, you want to get together? You're a little younger than I've been thinking about, you know, than I've been, you know, thinking about dating. But if you want to get together and talk about maybe working together, and he was like, hell yeah. And we met like that conversation was like, like 10 o'clock at night. And we met like for coffee the next morning. And uh, and we started talking about it. But then we immediately started dating. Like it was like we had a second date that night. Um, but six months later, we were doing our first Ruby Rocket with the visuals in Edmonton. Uh, we had tested it a couple of times in Portland. Um, but what he did is, so the black and white noir backgrounds that I wanted, he added cameras to it and he films it while we're doing it and then blends it with the backgrounds. So in a way, cause he does visuals for bands, which is basically like a jumbotron projected over the band. Um, but with glitches and cool colors and he controls the camera. So he adapted it to Ruby and he uses a, real simple video camera which is nice because it adds noise and makes it look old and then he blends it with the images and so it looks almost like we're doing the show in front of the movie in front of a 1940s movie and the same way you watch rocky horror in front people acting it out in front it's as if we're acting it out in front and he adds so much i mean he adds so much and He's so funny himself and knows how to, it's not just the visuals. It's the fact that he's a camera person and he's funny. So he knows how to really highlight the, whatever funny action is happening at the time. So like one time Matt Lask, who was in the Portland cast when we were doing a run of it, 
his character died and Matt has a longish tongue and like had his tongue hanging out when he was this dead character. And like John just like zoomed all the way into the tongue, you know, hanging out. <laughs> Which is what I think makes it so great is that long form is harder to do, especially in a bigger space to get those intimate moments or those little details. Um, and he knows how to follow the focus and and emphasize it. So that's that's been a huge gift to the show. Huge. You have a lot of amazing amazing merchandise uh, for the show. <laughs> I, I love the t-shirt. <laughs> and uh, I just want to show you that I also have still have my Ruby Rocket Yay! box of matches right here. Yeah. With this wonderful picture of you smoking. <laughs> oh man, I love to smoke. I haven't smoked in a long time, but I love it. <laughs> you know, why do you think that a lot of people who get into improv tend to want to be in short form rather than long form. That's funny. Cause I have the, the opposite experience here in Portland. I think, I think it depends on what you're like value, right? Like I think a lot of times we talk about improv in, in these two categories, but even in these categories, there's massively different, experiences and you know like like movies are short form and long form right you have short films that get academy awards you have long films that get academy awards and nobody's like short films are shit and i know he's like long form is movies are pretentious like there's no form debate and then also you have a million different kinds of short form and another bunch of different kinds of long form and i have some very controversial opinions because i think a long form montage is short form if you're just doing a series of unrelated scenes and again this depends on the montage but most montages i see and frequently by people who poo poo um short form it's just a series of unrelated scenes how is that different than a short form it's just unhosted it's just unhosted short form with fewer suggestions from the audience if you do a montage that discovers some kind of form and has a beginning of middle you know some sense of beginning middle and end and story dynamics like then you're talking about a long form piece because it's been one continuous story that has taken longer to tell. That's all there is. If you're not doing short form with the skills that you need in long form, then you're just not doing it at its biggest capacity. You know, Lloyd Alquist from MI West Side. Yeah, I think I met him in Miami in 20 years ago. Um, He's a very professional short form, like, you know, the MI touring company, Mission Mission Improbable, like they are short, they, they have short form dialed, dialed to a T. And he will say, you're in the whole show. It is a long, it should, a short form show should be a long form show. Because a lot of people will see they're in a short form show and they'll look at the list and they go, okay, I'm. <clears throat> I'm in uh, one voice expert and then I'm in this thing game and that game. And then they like kind of sit there and they're just waiting for their three games. 
It's like, no, you're in the whole show. You should be adding environment, being ready to jump in. You should be creating a competitiveness amongst yourselves that's entertaining. Like there is a whole show that you are in every second that you're on stage. And if you're not in a thing, you should be giving it your total and complete attention. So if someone looks at you, they follow your line of focus back to the game that's being played. You are in it the whole time. So I, I find the distinctions between short and long much grayer than most people. I I completely uh, I completely agree with you on that, and you know it's funny. I'm when I'm teaching classes or or lead rehearsals, I always say that, you know, when we're doing short form, it doesn't mean that we don't have a scene to do. You know, we we could still full out act, and the only difference I would say is you just have to get to how you're feeling a lot quicker. Usually, that way you can play whatever whatever the game is. Yeah. And that's a, when I say start, I barely did short form before I did long form. And so I was one of the first people I knew who did long form really first, really dove into it. And I totally, because I was like from this film world and wanted to tell these long stories, it's just like short form, you know, a, a little snobby for sure towards short form. And then I started doing it and it was hard. And it's like, oh, I have to let go of my ideas faster. I have to think faster. And every short form game is just building a muscle. It's just building a muscle. And and now I've improvised long enough that I can see a short form game and know which muscle it's exercising. Or I can think of a muscle that needs to be exercised, you know, and I can think of a game that can do it. Um that's all it is. And it actually makes doing a scene harder because you're layering something on top. And then it feels easier when you take it away. <laughs> like, it's just so <laughs> helpful. It's just so helpful. I think that the I think that people who want to do short form over long form just want to play fast and high energy and are maybe afraid of how to do that. Because you should have that same. I, I like to play fast and funny, even in long form, even though I, I can be slow and patient, too. But um, but I expect the same rate, you know, of reaction, I guess. doesn't always have to be laughs, but I expect that same level of engagement. But it's easier to get there. There's a lot of crutches that help in short form if it's hosted, right? Because it's only going to last three minutes. So if it didn't go well the the tension is relieved anyway is three minutes it's over uh but i think a lot of long form people who who poo poo short form can't do it and i challenge That's probably them. why they poo poo it they do and i found the things and this is what i tell everybody at, at my theater is like the things you hate the most are the things you need to work on the most I really hated 185. I hated it so much. I'm not a pun fan and I just hated it. And and it's like, oh, I really needed to learn how to take that, knock my sensor down and be fast enough to come up with any, say whatever was coming out by the time I finished that setup and needed to say the punchline. I needed that so bad and it did so much for me to force myself to play that stupid game that I hated so much. And I, it's always that way. If, if you're like, oh, I hate this. Like, uh-oh, 
guess that's the thing you need to work on the most. <laughs> yeah. If you hate it, embrace it even more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Every time I watch you play, no matter what show it is that you're doing, you seem to have this wonderful balance between strength and vulnerability. How do you manage to play to both of those attributes? Hmm. Well, thank you. First of all, that's a high compliment. And uh, the first first time I've really had to think about that. I think I have very little boundaries. I've had like, and I always have had very little boundaries. So being, I think being open to playing vulnerability is what like Mark and Joe connected with in me um, uh, from Basprov and Mark Sutton and Joe Bill, because, you know, we just became really good friends and I, and, and I, been I like again another huge privilege in my life was getting to play with them when I was a very new improviser and I think I've I have a lot of access to my emotions um just naturally from from a, a big emotion big fiery emotional family so I don't know so that part is uh is easier for me. Like I was surprised we did an interview with people, what they got out of improv to, to make a, like what, what to expect from your intro to improv. And I was very surprised by the people who were like, I learned to identify what I was feeling like as a person. And I was like, Oh yeah, that that's awesome. And also not a thing I've ever, I'm always like, ah, I feel this. I feel that. So that's, that's been easier. And then, uh, I don't know. I wish I had a more eloquent answer to this question. <laughs> I think I think the being stronger on stage took more time. Did it really? I think so. But no, maybe not. Because also, John Mark, like the, they saw our Chicago Improv Festival show and they we were opening for them. We got paired with them and they came in. They were like, what are these three young chicks from Portland about to do? <laughs> <laughs> I think actually my strength comes from some confidence that I have around storytelling from my years making films and writing. So I think that gave me kind of a leg up the way that if you go into stand up having your performance skills from improv, if if you've been doing improv and you go into stand up, like you're going to be a better stand up than someone who's just started cold because you have those performance skills. And I think that I, I have, I had, you know, I told stories and I'd been an editor. So I have this like obligation to the story. I can tell when a story is lagging and I can tell when a story needs a, what it needs. And so playing to that sort of overcomes my own ego. I'm just like trying to serve the story and sometimes to my detriment. But um, and it was also something like I was saying, like that I had to learn to calm down too. Is that I don't always have to be helping and like feel responsible for the whole thing myself. But I do think that I feel this like intense responsibility to the audience. People will often ask me, 
was there a particular moment where improv became really special or was there anything that happened to me that made me change my whole outlook on improv? And I will tell them it was the first time I saw you and Mark do your duo. You have this amazing show, which I will gladly say changed my whole life. And it's this format that you and Mark have developed called a uh, comedy, a tragedy and a romance. And so I wanted to, because that's so near and dear to my heart, I wanted to ask you about that. How did that start and how has that show been with you and Mark? Wow, that's awesome. That's really nice to hear. Thank you for saying that. And I'm I'm so glad that that's the case. Um, yeah, it was Mark's idea. Yeah, it's, it's in every life. And it is based on the saying that in every life there's comedy, tragedy, and romance. And it was Mark's idea. And... You know, he asked me to do that show with him. I'm trying to remember if I don't think Miami was the first, but that first one we did was like one of the one of the most intense ones we've ever done. Um, and so we do a comedy tragedy and a romance. We divide up the time, no matter how much time we have, and we do one of e one scene of each. And Mark is, I mean, first of all, just getting to play with Mark Sutton again was like what why how how did i get this uh it's been so incredible and what mark and joe both can do is they both know like that that what i need and i can't even articulate it but they can like they know how to give me like the the base i need to feel safe and then once i feel safe i'll just open up right so they just both know how to do it. And maybe it's just by being them. And I just know that it's never going to fall apart because they're there. They're, they're just like rocks. And, and I get to be like, woo, whatever's going to happen. Uh, and as the person who's usually that, right, that grounded person in scenes, right, I don't necessarily feel that playfulness I feel that more responsibility I think they free me of that sense of responsibility I was just talking about and they let me play from a playful place or a vulnerable place or emotional place so uh I just I I know that they're there for me um both and that show yeah I don't even remember the first time we did it like honestly from the first time we did it it felt like we had done it forever there was no like learning curve for it. I don't even know, like very, we rehearsed maybe once or twice in Chicago, but it was after we'd already done it a bunch of times. And then we just, you know, we never, we never even rehearse it. Um, and we just like, I had done shows with Joe, uh, Deanna and I were the first women in the boat in Bass Prov. And they invited us to do it with them in Seattle because they had Stephanie Weir as a guest and they wanted to see what it was like to play with a woman in the boat before Stephanie. So we were their practice run. And uh, and so just Mark and I always wanted to do a show. And that was his idea. And Mark is just such a great actor. He is. And to be able to and I don't have acting training. Like I didn't go to theater school or do anything like that, but I can react authentically and 
Mark, like, uh, honestly, the I think my favorite, two of my favorite scenes of all time, the top two, were both Miami. One was the one we did in the museum when the tragedy was he came and told me he was a cop telling me my daughter had been killed. That was the one I saw. And like, I don't even know if I ever told you the behind the scenes, but someone I had just met the night before had confided in me that he was the last person to see somebody before she had been killed. Oh my goodness. And he had told me this, I assume in confidence, he didn't say it was necessarily in confidence, but he was talking about like what it feels like to get interrogated and how much they fuck with your mind when you're getting interrogated. And he was like the number one suspect. And so hearing this was like, A, like, oh, like what an intense thing to share with somebody. And also I just met this guy and it was like late (laughs) at night and like we were the only ones around and... So there was that part of it. And so I went back to when when I went back to the hotel and I saw Mark, I like spilled this information because I was coping with my own like safety sense of and like don't think I I wasn't didn't feel threatened, but you know, somebody just told you they were the suspect of this very famous thing is like a little a lot. And so I told him that. And so somewhere that informed that move he made. But the person who confided that into me was there. Right. So Hmm. like so when Mark said it to me, like, so first of all, I have to improvise acting like a mother who's just found out her daughter's been killed, which is like a thing people win Academy Awards for. Second. A move is inspired by like something vulnerable somebody told me the night before that I told Mark and now Mark's bringing it up in front of the guy. Right. So it's like, oh, my God, all these layers and that museum venue had no wings. It was Mm -hmm. just us in a corner, literally trapped by the audience. And um, so I actually went into shock. It was a legitimate shock that you had at that moment. It, it was like I didn't even necessarily have to like at like how does this act? I was like in shock from all of that happening at once, and I couldn't. I like was like, oh, I'm gonna go like just collect myself, and I was like, there's nowhere to go, right? I mean, I couldn't walk off stage to make coffee and collect my. I couldn't do anything. <laughs> I had to like go through it all in front of everybody the whole time, and then. And then he came in and then he was offering to call people. And then there was that moment where it became clear. I think I said something like, do police do all of this? Always do all of this for for people? And we both realized the cop had kind of gone too far and that he was the predator. That's what had happened. Yeah. It became discovered that it was the cop that killed the daughter. Yeah. Or he wasn't even a cop. Right. Could have been a cop. Could have, but whatever was That's happening, too, yeah. I was in danger all of a sudden. Mm. And again, couldn't 
run off stage, couldn't do anything, was physically in reality trapped in that corner with him. And I started to run and Mark grabbed my hand and threw like my arm and threw me to the ground. And I rolled back and I had that moment where I was like, oh, my God. Am I, am I a am I physically OK? B, am I OK with the fact that Mark just actually threw me down to the ground? But it was very like it couldn't have been better if had it been choreographed. I was not hurt. He he pulled me down in a way that I just kind of rolled back. And uh, and then I eventually ran. And like, that's one of my favorite moments in all of improv was the audience parting like a like, like the Red Sea. Yeah. Do you remember that? When I, I do, finally yeah. started to get to the door and run, everyone's like, like, get out and like yeah. opened up for me to leave. And then the scene that followed that. Oh, and then Mark took my little book because he kept saying, do you want to call? And then he was calling my mother, right? It was like, oh, it was unreal. Yeah. And you know, what I loved so much about that scene and why it was such a big moment for me to see that was how well you two just honored the reality that you were doing and the world that you were creating. And, you know, you and Mark, you're two incredibly talented performers. And if at any point in time you wanted to, put a comedic spin on the scene or do something to kind of ease attention. You could have easily done that. And I was shocked that you two actually didn't do that. You stayed true to what was happening and there wasn't even anything that was said or done that was accidentally funny and got unexpected laughs. It was so raw and so honest and truthful. And I remember seeing that and just being so blown away by that. Thank you. And the scene after was the my favorite scene because then I I think we both knew we had to show everyone in the audience that we were okay with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And do you remember the lights came up and I was sitting on his lap? Yeah. And then I do and, remember. And then <laughs> and then I was the high status character, right? I was this uh vaguely European uh flight attendant who had taken this guy home with her and he was like all nervous and uncomfortable. And so we've, we flipped the status and it was, and it was the romance, but the romance is always the funniest one, even funnier than the comedy because it follows the tragedy. And then the other one that's my favorite was when Mark was the cop who was coming to see the therapist because he had killed a kid Mm. who had a gun like a fake gun, but a gun that looked real. And as the therapist, I was like, he he came in, he established that reality. I was pretty sure what it was just by how he was talking and he was didn't want to be there. And he didn't want to talk. And I was like, you don't have to talk. You just have to put your time in. And then he just sat there quiet. And I had all the urge to like go and like do something on my computer or whatever. And I was like, I'm a therapist. It's my job to just give him my attention this whole time. And so I just sat there and stared at him. And Mark, for, I don't know how, you know, for me, it felt like forever, but like just sitting there silently cycling through his emotions so that you could read the thoughts of this character who was so sad, angry, uncomfortable. Like, I was just like, for fuck's sake, Mark, like that acting is unbelievable. And I had the best seat in the house to to watch it. And all I had to do was sit there and give him that space. 
How do you deal with, when you're doing a great scene like that, there's always that temptation that a lot of improvisers feel to somehow make this a funny scene. How do you deal with avoiding that temptation to do something that doesn't come from a place of odd, uh, honesty just for the sake of making the audience laugh? I, it would just be so inappropriate in that world, in that moment, you know, for either of those characters to, I've played characters that deal with vulnerable moments through comedy, right? So that you can have, there can be dramatic scenes that have moments of comedy. I think a lot of my characters with Joe in that show are, are characters who who have that but it was there was nothing funny about that scenario <laughs> like there's right. just nothing funny about it and and for me i'm interested in engaging on any level right so f bernie silence from second city said there's a thousand different kinds of silence and there's a thousand different kinds of kinds of laughter and the sooner you can tell the difference the better mm. and and what i love because i've done kids shows as well and have you ever done kids shows? Uh, I haven't. No. Okay. So when you do kids shows, they. Well, I've done that... kid magic shows, but not oh, kid yeah. improv shows. Well, and I bet this happens in your magic shows. They have no sensor. They don't know they're supposed to sit there and be quiet necessarily. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And so if you're engaging them, they will like narrate their feelings back at you. <laughs> like, and it's really helpful in learning like what the different types of silence are, because when they're scared, they'll go, <gasps> you know, and they're like, mm -hmm. it's behind you. Yeah. Or like. One time I was, I had this fairy character who was afraid to play this cello that she wanted so bad because she didn't want to sound bad on it. And so she like burst into tears when her friends gave her this cello and, uh, and the kids were like, it's okay. You just got to practice. Like, I just love <laughs> feedback, whatever it is. And you know, it's why Jordan Peele is so good at horror because like horror and comedy are not so different you're creating tension and it's about creating and releasing tension creating and releasing tension so for me going from that horrifying scene into the flight attendant scene is releasing tension yeah. it doesn't have to be a laugh right there's totally a there's, hear you. yeah so that's what I like. I, and I love turning adults into kids and getting like I was <laughs> seeing it curious the other day in our second half. We do like these movies and my character was like really dorky and got his or her. I can't remember what gender my character was for her and the care. The awesome audience member went, oh, poor, whatever the name, poor dorky or whatever his name was and I, I went running off the stage and I was like they didn't mean to say that out loud they just really felt bad <laughs> that moment. And that's those yeah. are the victories for me yeah I'm always saying that sometimes the best reactions in improv aren't always laughs mm -mm. I like oz and ooze and <gasps> and like you can really see when people are leaning in yeah. leaning in for, on their chairs like what is gonna happen like so that that to me when you ask me like what do I get out of improv it's that connection and that immediate 
connection, right? That a film doesn't have that you are one-on-one. I used to be like, uh, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker and I don't care about the audience. Like I'm sharing my voice and my art. And if they don't get it, they don't get it. I was totally that person. If you're that person, if anyone's listening is that person, I get it. However, it's much harder to be that person when the audience is right in front of you. Yeah. And it makes me feel sick when I am dis when they're disengaged. And it mm. makes me feel connected and like alive and real like yeah, con- that just connection, a group that is connected. That's what I love. Taking them for that journey and and them taking me on the journey right it's their feedback that tells me where to go it's it's collaborative not just with the improvisers but with the audience as well and that's what i think long-form improvisers sometimes snobby long-form improvisers don't care enough about the audience i think people love short form do care about the audience but they don't always care as much about their scene partners as they should on the negative sides that that's a very good point. That's a very good point. So how did Curious Comedy Theater get started? Oh my goodness. I even when I did that audition in 2003 when I was like 4 years into improv like I was like, "Oh, Mad TV would be like a great credit for when I open a theater <laughs> and it would be like great <laughs> money for when I open a theater." Uh, when I went to that long form improv festival, the very first one, the Brody and like had my mind blown by long form. And then we all went out to eat as everyone does. And the Tom Johnson, the artistic director said, what, what would you all do if money was no object? And I was like in a massive transition as many people are when they get into improv. And I was like getting divorced. I was moving from Eugene to Portland. It's like writing in my journal, figure out what I wanted out of my life. And I heard myself say like, I don't know, I guess I'd do something like this, you know, have like a cool community of people creating stories together. And like right at that time I started writing in my journal what like the vision was and then 10 years later (laughs) opened curious Mm. and what has that been like to have this this space for you where you can create with all these wonderful people i i mean to be able to play as much as i've played for 15 years right is an opportunity you that that's hard to get um, a big reason why I opened the theater, uh, you know, which I've talked about a lot is because I, you know, the, there were two things I wanted to take care of before I opened the theater. One is I wanted to make sure I had like my own individual aspirations were pursued so that I would never resent people at my theater who were doing that. And I also wanted to have the financial resources to not, uh, like be yelling at people for ruining my life if they did a bad scene, right? Like I didn't want my whole everything. So those were the two things that I was pursuing in that and that I was like qualified enough, uh, knew improv well enough. So those were the things I was pursuing during that 10 years. And so part of that was going to Chicago for four years again and studying at all the places and 
Second City. I took to their training center, their like conservatory, um, writing program, music program. And I was in their directing program and they were like, uh, they said we would never hire a woman to direct the main stage. And really, yeah. And this is to my class and like very nonchalantly said in 2007. And there were two women in my directing class and, uh, and he, he said like they had brought in the executive producer to talk to us. And that was one of the things he said. And he said, because every cast needs an alpha male and an alpha male will never listen to a woman. Jeez. And that was when I was like, huh. And even then, because I was so, as Susan Messing so eloquently calls it, from the suck it up generation, I was like, well, I'm going to just have to prove them wrong and like work harder. And so I had worked on my direct, like on the final project. I started working six months before it premiered to try to recreate the number of hours that second city gets to test their material. And like I had this whole cast and they were all promised that they'd be seen by the second city producers because that's what we were told. And so they put six months in and we wrote this show and they practiced the show and they tested the show and refined it and all this stuff and uh, put it up, sold it out the whole run. Producers never came and saw it. Oh, they didn't come and see me or the other woman's uh, shows. So it's one thing to like, had they even come, they they could have argued that it wasn't good or whatever, but they didn't even come. And so that's when I decided to leave Chicago and open my own place. So I, you know, I, I would not have had the opportunity to play and direct and do all the things that I've done. And Second City has not hired a woman in the 15 years since then except they might have last year and i'm not sure if she's for the main stage but um so i still i would have been there for 15 years trying to prove myself in the meantime i've gotten to direct hundreds literally hundreds of shows Mm -hmm. and do thousands of shows and so that's been amazing it's been amazing to like create a space that's held not only improv shows but there's been weddings and there's been funerals and there's been i love thinking about a location and the stories that a location can can tell and the kinds of meetings that we've had in there and um so it's been incredible to have a venue in general and be a part of the community it's been incredible to have people get i just uh babysat yesterday a baby from a couple that met at curious and they live right up the street from me now. And so she's a curious baby. Uh, (laughs) So there's been marriages and babies and friendships and creative alliances that have emerged, you know, from curious, even there's been other theaters that have been, that have come out of from people who have met and started their own improv theater um, or their ensembles that have toured. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool it's really hard it's a very hard job and uh there's a lot i wish i knew before i started but there's just a lot of reward that comes out of it as well absolutely well you know of course we're bringing up this issue um we're certainly in a, in a, in a great time where women are now finally getting more of the opportunity. Um, but a lot of people would say that 
we still have ways to go. What would you say to let women know how to keep persevering in this and how to keep growing and how to keep showing that this does not have to continue to be a man's world? That is a great question. And I would even extend this now to like gender queer people, trans people, right? People of color. Like you, you all have more people of color because you're in Miami. Right. Um, but that is exceptional, like just so exceptional and such a nice privilege of your space. Um, but it's it it's not necessarily the the best advice because it is hard but like if people block your way you have to just make your own way if you want to do it and that's that's what i would say you know and it's unfortunate and there's times where i definitely like grieve that i wasn't allowed to play and produce in an institution that was hand like the money was handled and the stuff was handled that I've had to handle like you know money and um uh, you know just so many situations that uh, the politics amongst people and all of the things that take away energy that could have been spent on my creativity so I I definitely feel a sense of loss around that and I and I I do believe like you know all of the rewards on the other side of having done it myself I don't even know if I would have liked to have been a part of somebody, you know, because I didn't even get to do it. I might have ended up just being like, screw this and done it myself anyway, because I'm punk rock anti-authority <laughs> kid at heart. But um, but yeah, I would just say and also I think now there are enough spaces that are being created by people of color and by women and like seek that out. And if you really want to do it, find those people to support you. And um, and thank goodness, like when I came up, women didn't even support each other. Right. And now I think women are supporting each other, young women, and I encourage them to continue to do so. And and be inclusive of not just other women, but other marginalized communities uh, and find that place. Don't waste any time in a place that isn't consciously trying to make space for you. Find mm. places that are specifically trying to make space for you. I have loved each and every one of your answers today, Stacy. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I always end with the same question for everybody. And so I'm going to ask it to you now. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? In improv or life? Anything. Well, it probably applies to both. Well, I'll give you two. I'll give you two. Is that okay? Can I give you two? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, talk less. That was my uh, advice from from Rob Reese at that very first improv festival that I went to. Talk less. That would be my biggest improv note for everybody um, and probably extends into life as well. Like sit, sit in those silences, leave room for other people. Uh, and then even though I've talked a lot, when you just gave me that compliment, I was like, oh, I feel like I've just talked too much. Um, 
And the other one is uh, Norman Lear, creator of all the shows I grew up watching, uh, Good Times and The Jeffersons and um, uh, what's it called? What's the one with the girls in school? Facts of Life and Different Strokes. He There was a live version of it and with like Jennifer Aniston and like stars in the, re, you know, live version of one of the shows. And I saw that. Yeah. Did you see it? He was talking to Jimmy Kimmel at the beginning and he's like 99 or is that I'm crazy. And Jimmy Kimmel says, you know, you've lived this long life and this successful life. What, what real quick, what is some advice that you would give? And he said, uh, two words over next those are two words we don't use enough and and he said on live television because when it's over it's just fucking over (laughs) 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 and then everyone went crazy jimmy kittle's like i think this might be the first time a 99 year old has said a swear word live on tv Hmm. but like I think in life and in, in life, right? Like we, we've been sort of socialized to be like, this is the relationship I'm going to have for the rest of my life. I'm going to force it to work or like these, this is my improv ensemble that I went through this. And like, eventually those things, like if some of those things, if you're lucky that and like stay functional and serve you the way that you need it and, and everyone is happy, of course, like don't, end it but when things start to just not work instead of sitting in that drama like sometimes it's okay to be like wow this this relationship or this friendship or this ensemble was useful to me for for a really long time and and now maybe we've just grown into another phase of life and it's not rejection sometimes if it's just acknowledgement that it's not serving anybody anymore yeah Surrender that which no longer serves you. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Stacy, I cannot thank you enough for talking to me today. And I can't wait to see you next January again, my friend. I can't wait either. Thanks so much for having me and for being just such a delightful human in my life. Really appreciate <laughs> you, friend. Well, I hope you all got a lot out of this conversation as I did. There's always something new I learn from this woman. She's so giving and so lovely, and I hope you get the chance to watch her perform soon. It's true artistry. My thanks to Stacey Halal for talking to me today. I invite you all listening to learn more about her theater, Curious Comedy Theater, at CuriousComedy.org. And also find out about her show, Ruby Rocket Private Detective, at RubyRocketPI.com. And if you don't know by now, you can visit my website, togetherbymyself.com, to learn about my solo improv show called Together By Myself. Feel free to contact me if you'd like me to bring my show to your venue or event, and you can also contact me for magic shows for all occasions. This was an absolutely wonderful time, my friends. I hope you all enjoyed it, and I hope you'll all come back and join me again here at Improv & Magic. Take care and see you next time.